Hey everyone, and welcome back to the multi-dimensional journey. This is your host, Ayahuasca Carr, and today we are talking about Zen, meditation, Tibetan Buddhism, and my good friend, partner, teacher, amazing soul of this earth, uh, Jonathan Schechter will be sharing his personal experience with meditation and his path to Tibetan Buddhism. But first we will hear from our sponsors. All right. And so welcome back to the multidimensional journey. This is your host, Ayahuasca Carr. And today we have um, my good friend and partner, Jonathan Schechter, uh, as our guest. And he's going to be talking probably about a lot of stuff. You have like incredible experience with, um, Tibetan Buddhism and meditation. So we'll be diving into all things meditation. Do you want to do a intro for yourself? Um, that was pretty amazing. (laughs) Why? Thank you. Hello. 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 Yeah. So, um, so this is interesting thing to talk about. Um, like what, even brought you to meditation and what what got you interested in it yeah that, that's a good question um my um okay we got cut off but we're, we're back okay um when i was 22 my um my dad's mom my, my nana died and um she actually waited for me and um it was a pretty it was a pretty interesting experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of left an impression on me, and uh, I could, I could feel her spirit around, like for the next few days. Wow! And um, I was in this bookstore, and I never, I all well, I never read anything but fiction books at oh. the time, like without fail. And I was walking through this bookstore, and something told me to like stop at the spirituality section and I don't know if it was like my Nana's spirit it kind of felt like there was synchronicitous in that way um and I picked up this book and I was just completely like taken with this book it was um um, by Lama Surya Das and it was called like Awakening the Buddha Within, I think, something like that. And but even though I was like really taken with the book, I was still so skeptical about that kind of stuff that I like put the book back and I was like, I'll get this, I'll see if I can get this book from the library. Like I'm not even ready to just buy the book, right? And uh, but I worked right near the downtown. Uh, Los Angeles Central Library. So I went and they they had this huge, I mean, they have like a whole floor of spiritual books. So I went like the next day and I got this book from the library and I started to read it. And the thing that got me like right off the hook was he was talking about that the Buddha said, don't just believe what I'm saying because I'm the Buddha and I know things. Like, go and try them for yourself and see if you get the same results that I did. Um, and if you, you know, and to take that into a more human context, like, well, when you start to do things, if you like what's happening, 
keep doing them. And if they don't really resonate with you, don't do that. And um, I was raised Jewish and it was very much like, this is what God says and this is what you got to do. And so this was like a real revelation to me. It really resonated with me. And uh, I started, I started meditating on the train to and from work because I worked in downtown LA and I would take the subway to work. And so I started like just counting my breaths and that's how I started. And, um, but yeah, it, it did resonate with me. So it was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I want to keep doing this. Wow. So it's like, uh, so I guess what you kind of like, you were sold, so to speak on like the sovereignty of it or the free will. It's like, oh, well, if it works, cool. If it doesn't work. And something it sounds like that kind of turned you on a little bit because from your background it was like this is how it's done right nice don't question it right just do it and you were like oh here the Buddha is like being like well right. you know go see for yourself yeah exactly nice even though you know I mean from like a from a young person's perspective at least in my experience it's like you sort of see these. Um, you know, avatars or, you know, God figures as sort of the same, right? Like, at least for me, like, the, you know, there's, but it was like, no, no, like, I'm just a guy that did a bunch of work. And if you do the work, you can get the same result, which is different than like, I'm God and you're not, right. and you have to do what I'm telling you because I'm God. Wow. You know? Yeah. I think that was a lot of my takeaway right. from, you know, my upbringing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's interesting because I I think I was just telling you and I just recently posted something on my Instagram. But Jack Cornfield, who I don't know who his teacher was, but um, he talks about how the Buddha said, "See for yourself." Right. And that sounds like it's directly related to what you just said. Yeah. yeah. And like being able to, uh, yeah, like the Buddha said, like this solved my own problems, and like it probably can solve yours. But the only way to know that is actually to. Yes. See for yourself. Yes. Rather than being a blind follower. Right. Which is what Jack Cornfield kind of emphasized. Yeah. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't get into this part of it till later, but I think my understanding is what is it's tied into the idea of karma and cause and effect. So it's, it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that, you know, he was the Buddha. He lived thousands of years ago. He was in India. He was a, born a prince, anything like that. What matters is that he did, he put the right causes and conditions together. And so therefore got the same result that you can get by putting those same causes and conditions together. Mm -hmm. And that's like uh, a pretty fundamental belief in Buddhism. It's, it's sort of like, um, like making a cake or like cooking something. Yeah. Like if you put the same ingredients together at, with the same temperature and you do it the same way every time, you should get the same thing. Yeah. Right. Now that's not a totally great example because I mean, cooking, you know, there's all kinds of variables sure, that come sure. in, but the, the, the general idea yeah, yeah. is there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Wow. Okay. So your Nana was, okay. Well, she, she was dying. Yeah. Okay. And then you're on your way to see her and then you stopped in the spiritual book section. No, no. It was after she died. 
It was after. Yeah. Okay. But like something, there was some sort of spirit, okay, like kind okay. of pushing me wow. into that section. Okay. And what year was this? Ooh. Uh, I'm super bad with math, but, uh, oh God, it was like 17 years ago. 2004? 2000. 19 years ago? <laughs> I thought I, I was bad with math. That's okay. Um, I was just curious. So, yeah. okay. And then you just started to focus on your breath. Yeah. Um, the technique in the book was just to count your breaths. Wow. And I thought, okay, well, I can do that even if I'm on a train, which I thought was, you know, kind of cool anyway. Because it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't time that I had to make for myself in the beginning, right, right. it was already time that I was sitting there. And like before that I would, um, play game boy or right. like maybe read a book, but usually play game boy. Yeah. Um, listen to music or something. So it was like, it was already time that I had to sit still. I wasn't doing anything. I could be reasonably distraction free. I mean, despite the fact that there's a lot of other people on the train, I guess from the beginning, I kind of thought, well, like if you can only do this sitting like in a cave or by yourself in complete silence, like how, what's it really good for? Like how good is it? Right. You know? So I wanted to figure out if I could apply it into a different environment. Yeah. And also it didn't take any more time commitment, you know? Yeah. It wasn't like I had to get up earlier or go to bed later or give up anything totally besides my game boy time on right, the train right. you know which wasn't a big deal so like <laughs> in terms of uh, so you started to change your habits right so when it comes to like i talk about that a lot on here like when we talk about integration and that sort of thing yeah um we talk about habit chaining habit chaining okay <laughs> habit chaining's good too. <laughs> it's totally good so um, so you made a decision to like change what you were doing and it, was it like a no brainer? Like it was a s easy slide in or was there, was it because of like how it was brought on by like the inspiration of your, your Nana's death or. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of both. I mean, it definitely, I felt like the, the, the sales pitch, like you, you know, kind of framed it of try this out and see if it has an impact in your life. Um, it had an immediate impact and I started okay. feeling better. I started feeling calmer. Wow. Um, I started to like notice changes. And so that really propelled me to continue to explore it right. and to, to go deeper with it. Um, because that was, that was the whole thing, right? It was like, we'll try it out and see if it, if it works for you. And right. it seemed like it was working for me. Absolutely. So this is interesting. Cause I think, um, your story like really demystifies when people hear the word meditation, like there's so many things that come up or, you know, and you're like, I read this book and I, I started counting my breaths, Yeah, you know, so let's just make sure everyone hears that right? <laughs> because that's what exactly like mindfulness or meditation is. It's sitting with your breath right. and breathing deeply and noticing non-judgmentally for a period of time yeah. and then developing what's known as the observer mindset so you can detach from whatever you're experiencing yes and the awesome and amazing part about breathing right is is that it puts us in our parasympathetic nervous system which is where we feel expansive and creative versus being in our 
fight or flight system, which most of us are in at some point because of stress and multi- multiple things. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think in the beginning, it it was definitely more, um, or I had more of a focus on being calm, and you know, sort of trying to uh, cultivate a mm. sense of, of calmness mm. and peace, um, that I just didn't have before. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know that that's what I was doing, that I was calming down my nervous system. Um, but I was, and it was amazing to go from, you know, this really crowded train with full of people, full of distractions, full of things that you could fixate on. And then I could close my eyes and basically like kind of block it out, you know, and I, cause I didn't really, I guess in the beginning, I didn't know or didn't focus on acceptance as much as it was like a way for me to calm down and to change my mind and to, to change my mindset and to, to go to a calmer place. And, and I actually used to like to go on my lunch break and, um, uh, sit like in these, you know, public places and it's in downtown LA, there's a lot of traffic there's a lot of people walking around but like just go and close my eyes and try to meditate in those situations and see if I could get to like a calmer place you know and like sort of block out all the all the noise and all the um the outside distractions I would say now my practice is more about acceptance you know it's if if you hear something if something is um annoying you especially like a noise you know like sort of um exploring that like just observing it and having the curiosity to say like well well i guess there's two different approaches you can just try to let it go because it's going to go on its own right without you doing anything but if you can't do that what about this is annoying me like what about this is bothering me yeah because you know, none of us live in a completely quiet world or a distraction-free world, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the beginning, it was just count my breaths and noticing that that was making me calmer and wanting wanting to cultivate that. Yeah. Wanting to explore more. Yeah, so that makes me think like, yeah. So you kind of advanced you're talking about like advanced levels of mindfulness and meditation. Like you might start off with these really basic and foundational things, which is just the breathing. Right. And then you start cultivating like these other things that you hear about with, um, mindfulness or, or meditation. And, um, you know, and it, it's interesting, um, cause those words are like oftentimes used syn- synonymously, but, um, I guess the way I interpret it is like you do mindfulness meditation or you do mindfulness sits hmm. so you can cultivate living mindfully. So it's like going to the gym and working out and building muscle and then, you know, that transcends the time in the gym or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, like you start with these really basic things and then you learn about like well, especially nowadays, I feel like meditate, there's like a gazillion apps, but like 
self-love and self-acceptance or relationships or, you know, how to be more mindful about anything, your money, the food you're eating, um, taking time, slowing down. Um, and there's more, and and then there's like a fucking more spiritual stuff that you can start to open your channels and your energies up to. Um, so, so yeah, so I know you, uh, at one point, so what, what, our audience doesn't know this, but I know this is that at one point, so there's this part of your story and then you got interested in going to Tibet. Yeah. Um, I was doing, I was more into Zen meditation and, um, kind of practicing, um, like some Vietnamese, um, Zen techniques, um, like Thich Nhat Hanh, um, was a big inspiration for me early on. Um, and, Somewhere along the line, yeah, I got interested in Tibetan Buddhism. There was there was a meditation center that I went to in LA that the um, the lady that ran it was uh, a nun in the Tibetan tradition, and it was interesting because this um, this meditation center was like it was kind of like a like a a monastic it was a home for monastics in the middle of this neighborhood in Los Angeles and everybody else that lived there besides for her practiced Zen and so somehow I you know I think I I went there a few times for Zen meditation and then I saw that they had like a Tibetan meditation thing Mm -hmm. and so I started to go to that and um I guess kind of made friends with her, you know, and was able to ask her questions and explore like a different side of things because Zen and Tibetan Buddhism are very different on the outside. If you're just looking at it at, you know, sort of judging the book by its cover, you know, one's very simple and austere. Um, It's very just to the point, you know, in Zen, you're, you're, everything that you just said about mindfulness is like taken to the extreme. It's like you sit and you just sit and count your breath. And, you know, um, when you walk, you just walk and you're mindful. And when you, you know, do the dishes, you just do the dishes and you're mindful and everything is just done with this very, um, intent and intense simplicity Mm -hmm. that really is at the heart of reality, right? Like we're, we're making up all these stories and all these other things about what's happening in the world. But at the, at the base, it's like you're breathing and you're walking and you're doing things. There doesn't have to be anything else that's going on. And then Tibetan Buddhism was like the complete opposite side of the coin. There's like all these deities and there's all these colors and, um, all these different ritual things. And, um, a friend of mine that, um, used to, that basically sort of had a similar path to me. Like he started off in Zen and then he went to Tibetan Buddhism. He said, like when I first encountered Tibetan Buddhism, it felt like Mexican Catholicism on acid. And like, I could definitely relate to that. Like it was so, it was so different, but somehow I found myself drawn to it. I ended up in like a, in a, um, going to, a different teaching and I walked in and the, the, the teaching, I had no idea what any of this stuff was, 
the the Lama, the Tibetan master that was teaching it was very um, stern looking. Like, I mean, he embodied the qualities of these, you know, the wrathful deities that you see. I mean, I, he scared the crap out of me just, you know, being in the room with him. And I had no idea what was going on. And he was teaching, he was doing this teaching on this um, meditation technique called POA. And in POA, you're taking energy through your central channel and moving it up um, basically from like, you know, your, your root chakra and like your heart center up into the top of your head. And the, the, the intent of the practice is that when you are about to die, you don't stop at the top of your head and you eject your, your consciousness out and basically send it to the, what, what's called like a Buddha pure land where this Buddha like lives and you can continue to gain enlightenment and work towards enlightenment and, you know, take rebirth in this, in this wow. pure land. And I had no idea about any of this, like, and he's just sitting there and he's like showing, you know, demonstrating how you move energy up these central channels. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Like, I have no clue. Um, but there was a guy that was sitting next to me and at the end of the teaching, everybody was going up in, in the Tibetan tradition, you, um, you can offer the Lama a, a silk scarf at the end. And that's usually where people like, if they're going to give a donation or something, that's where they'll do it. Right. And he looked over at me and he just saw how lost and bewildered I was. And he said, is this your first time like at a teaching like this? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, well, if you want to offer the llama a scarf, um, you can use mine. And I remember standing in that line, like shaking because I had no idea what was going on. I was completely outside of my comfort zone. Um, not to mention like what he was teaching on was like pretty intense and, um, but I, I did it. I gave the llama the scarf. He like gave it back to me with a blessing. Wow, wow. And then this, this guy that had lent me the scarf, his name was Tyler. Um, he said, Hey, um, I know you're like brand new, but there's this really special llama that's coming here soon. And it would be really, really cool if you could come back. And he like gave me his contact information and we, we stayed in contact for a while and that Lama turned out to be like who I consider my main teacher, um, Garchin Rinpoche. And the first time um, I, I did go back to that place for teachings with, with him. But the first time he, he, when he came into town, besides for just those sort of heavy teachings, he gave just like a Dharma talk at like a church. And... I remember just from the first time seeing him, there was so much energy and there was so much love um, coming from him. And um, I went to, to give him the scarf at the end and he gave me a hug wow. and I just burst out into tears. I mean, it was such an, a, a strong emotional um, experience and so like unexplainable for me. You know, like it was like, what is happening here? I just felt like I was completely filled up with energy and filled up with light. And um, there was 
you know, just like he said, there was something really, really special about this llama. Um, so yeah, I started, um, I, I went back to the other teachings that he gave. Um, I ended up taking refuge, which is, you know, sort of like, um, I guess you would say like the, the Buddhist equivalent of baptism, you know, where you, you're taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma, which are the Buddhist teachings and the Sangha, which is the, the Buddhist community. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I would try to sort of follow him, find out as much as I could about him and, and what he taught on and the different, um, the teachers sort of in the lineage that he came from. And, uh, yeah, at some point I was getting really into it. I really felt called to it. And there's, um, in, in, in the Tibetan tradition and specifically in that lineage that, you know, he came from, there was a, a sort of a practice of doing a three-year retreat. And I really thought that I wanted to do this three-year retreat. I was really drawn to it for some reason. I think part of it was like the, there was this sort of promise of these esoteric yogas and esoteric practices that, you know, were sort of off limits unless you went and did this retreat. And this is where you learned these, like, you know, these yogas and, they seem super cool, right? Like who wouldn't want to learn how to do dream yoga or um, Tumo, which is like heat yoga where you can generate heat yeah. um, uh, like sort of um, at will from your body. And um, in in that particular lineage, which is the Drikun Kagyu, um, you have to do these preliminary practices before you can go and do retreat. So you have to do like 100,000 prostrations. You have to do 100 thousand of these mantras you have to do a hundred thousand of um these mandala offerings and you have to do um a hundred thousand uh guru yoga sessions so these are all different practices that you have to do before they will even consider you know letting you in for for this retreat and um i ended up going to new york to new york state my grandfather on my mom's side was um, he, he was recovering from a hernia operation and he was a farmer and I just had this brilliant idea that like, oh, here's this place where I can be of service, you know, cause he needs somebody to help him out, but I can also have a place where I can just concentrate on doing this practice and getting ready, um, to do this retreat. And, uh, I, I stopped, I stopped at Garchin Rinpoche's center in Chino Valley driving from Los Angeles to, um, to New York. And I actually got a chance to talk with that first Lama that I saw, the, the one that was very stern. His name was uh, Traga Rinpoche. And I talked to him and I asked him, I said, you know, this is what I'm doing. You know, what, what advice do you have or what, what can I do? What should I be doing? And he just said, you know, Hey, just, just be really diligent with your practice and, you know, just don't worry about finishing just worry about what you're doing right now and focus on that. And so I thought, okay, I can, I can work with that. And, um, when I got to New York, um, I was doing my practices, I was doing my prostrations cause that's the first, the first step. I guess sometimes people do, you know, some of one, some of the other, some of the other, mm-hmm. I felt like I'm going to do a hundred thousand prostrations and knock this out, which is a lot harder than, you know, sure. I, I thought, yeah, <laughs> But, um, 
Garchomp Rinpoche had a center in Rochester, which is about like an hour away from where I lived. And so I started going to that on the weekends. And um, there was another llama, another um, another student of Garchomp Rinpoche's that came and taught at the center a few times. His name was um, Kempo Sherab Ozer. And Kempo is like a, it's sort of like you have a monastic uh, degree. Wow. Like it's the equivalent of having like a master's wow. as, a, as a monastic. Um, and so one day I, he was there and I was talking to him. Um, I went to sort of get a consultation. And mm. um, he, he spoke a little bit of English, but not enough that he could give these consultations in English. So the, there was a translator that was there with him. Um, her name was Megan. And, um, and I said, you know, so Rinpoche, I'm doing my practice and I'm trying to, you know, get ready for this three-year retreat. And yeah, okay, that's what I'm doing. Right. And he said, oh, well, you know, yeah, I mean, doing a three-year retreat's pretty, pretty cool and you can do that. But I really think that you should be a translator. And I was like, whoa, what? Um my initial thought, even though I didn't have um, like a negative um, reaction to it, it seemed like a decent idea. I just had no idea how I was going to do that. Mm -hmm. And I expressed that. I said, you know, Megan uh, was a brilliant translator. She went to Harvard and studied Tibetan. And I basically kind of said, well, Rinpoche, that sounds like a great idea, but I don't have the money um, or the, the grades, you know, to, to go to Harvard. So what am I supposed to do? And he said, oh, don't worry about that. You don't need to do that. You can go over to Tibet and teach English and they'll, you know, they'll teach you Tibetan. And then after that, you can go to India and there's this um, translator like training program. And don't worry about it. We'll take care of it if that's what you want to do. And I was like, OK, cool. Like I didn't have anything else going on. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was getting ready to sit and a retreat for three years. So it wasn't like I was making all these plans and, you know, doing all this stuff. So I guess I took a leap of faith, you know, and yeah, that, that led me to Tibet. Heck yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, hmm, hmm. So, okay. So do you want to talk about what happened in Tibet? Yeah. Um, well, it was much more challenging than, you know, oh, don't worry about it. We'll take care of everything. Um, I ended up getting to go to Garchan Rinpoche's monastery mm -hmm. um, after I had been living in a city called Sheening for maybe three months. Um, and I had ended up, uh, I taught during sort of like a summer school at uh, one of the they were affiliated with, with Garchin Rinpoche in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, that was initially like where we had gone over okay. and we were like, we were told like, yeah, you'll be able to teach at oh, this right. school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when we got there, we found out that there was a bunch of missionaries that like had sort of made a deal with the Tibetan people that were there right. and they didn't want us teaching there. Yeah. So I ended up teaching in one of the, um, like sort of the equivalent of a public school yeah. in, um, in Sheening for a while. And then they called me and said, hey, do you want to go to the monastery? Right. And I was like, heck yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, so I ended up getting taken 
to this monastery. It was like we drove for about like 24 hours, yeah. I guess, um, you know, kind of um, west. Because Sheening is like if you look at a map um, and I, I mean, I haven't been back there anytime recently, so I'm sure it's much more developed now. But like Sheening was like the last like sort of civilized city if you're going west. Um, it was actually historically the end of the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to this place called Yushu, which is like, to me, it was like the last place that I would call a town right. and had like had some electricity, um, you know, had houses that might have some un- indoor plumbing, had like markets and you know, I could get a phone card uh-huh. and buy vegetables and, you know, things like that. There was there was like roads and streets and stuff. And uh, Garchin Rinpoche's brother had a house there, so I, that was sort oh, of wow. that was sort of like the 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 launch pad for the next step, right, right, which was driving into the mountains. Um, like literally, you're driving on this road; it's paved. There's no sign or anything, but at some point, the guy driving the car just makes a hard left turn into like onto this like plain, and is like driving. Then now there's no road. And you're like, where am I going? Like, what's going on? And uh, drove, you know, across this plain into this amazing, like, forest. Wow. You're, like, going over rivers and this, wow. in the Jeep. And, like, there's these huge, um, like, pine trees. And you don't see anybody, like, the whole time. Wow. You might see a yak and maybe, like, one dude on a motorcycle. Right, right. If you're lucky. Right, right. And driving like that for like three or four hours and then you come up on this valley with this amazing monastery in it wow and um yeah i got to teach english there there was there's sort of a there's a the lower monastery is where i lived and you would say there was like sort of a i guess you would call it a village um of people living around that monastery and all the kids um you know, from that village would go to school at the monastery and they would do, um, you know, they, they got to learn English when there was somebody there, you know, that was a student of, of Rinpoche's that would come and teach. Wow. And so, yeah, I taught like three different classes, maybe three or four times a week. And the rest of my time I was, you know, meditating and studying the language. Okay. Yeah. So when were you at that time, okay, so no, you had decided that you were going to be a translator. So you were on yeah. this track now. Yeah. Okay. And I still, I mean, I was still doing a lot of meditation. I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing the prostrations. Um, yeah, I'd kind of given up on that or at least like press pause on it. Um, I probably would have had to do one of the other preliminary practices if I wanted to do it in Tibet because the room that I was in, um, had like this really short carpet in it that would have like completely just given me rug burns to do prostrations on. And one of the things that I learned, like just being in that environment and like seeing different people, like we would go to different monasteries, like before I, I went, when I was still living in Sheening. Yeah. And there'd be people doing prostrations, like at the temples and stuff, but they would have these boards. Oh, right. Sort of like these like pieces of plywood or like, like, Maybe not plywood, but um, uh, like 
um, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, so but, they could do the full yeah, body Yeah, so they could do the full body prostrations without, like, completely okay, just okay. ripping up their skin. Wow, they made mechanisms for this. Yeah, That's oh, yeah. Interesting. Well, and it was crazy because you would see these places where, like, there would be, like, wooden floors, let's say, um, in the temples. And the wooden floors would have, like, these grooves mm-hmm. in them from people doing thousands of prostrations, like, where their feet. Wow. Their feet had been, wow. you know, like even though they were they yeah. were doing it on some sort of board. Holy crap! But like enough that they had like made a change in the, in the wood, yeah, wow. which is pretty incredible. Um, but yeah, I was I was doing um, some other meditations, um, doing still doing like a version of my mindfulness meditation that I had started with, you know, um, back in Los okay. Angeles. Um, I would say a little bit more advanced, you know, I wasn't counting my breath anymore. I was able to just sit and, um, not even need to close my eyes necessarily and, you know, keep that mindfulness. Um, I was also doing, um, a lot of meditation on like impermanence and, um, you know, mortality, um, cause and effect, um, these, those are sort of considered preliminaries as well, but they're like preliminary meditations rather than preliminary practices. Yes. And they're preliminary in the, in the, in the way that they're supposed to, um, kind of make you more dedicated or, you know, the, 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 the way that it's put in the Tibetan literature, liturgy is the thoughts that turn your mind to the Dharma. Right, right. Um, sometimes it's like referred to as, um, like the thoughts that break your attachment to, um, sort of, you know, samsaric life, which is like the normal, you know, normal human life where you're not thinking about spirituality. Right. Right. Okay. So timeline wise, from the moment that you were like shaking with the scarf and looking at this guy and being like blown away. Yeah. And then here you are like totally manifesting this reality. Like you're in this amazing place and yeah. you're at Garchen Rinpoche's monastery. So is yeah. that a year later or? Um, yeah, like maybe like a year and a half, like wow. two years at the most. Wow, wow. I mean, it's been a while. So like I, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess like two years. Okay. Give okay. or take. So, hmm, interesting. So, I don't know. I guess I'm interested more like, uh, so what's your mindset through all of this? Like, as you go through this, like, basic Zen practice and you're like, oh, um, this is, this is a, like, you just followed your intuition and it was like a natural guidance. And then you get into this whole, like, Tibetan Buddhism thing that, you know, something inside of you was like screaming, be like, this is awesome. This is incredible. You had such an emotional yeah. response and, and then you kind of just like ran with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it was. It was like just, and I didn't, I don't even think that I had the um, wherewithal to realize that that's what was happening. But, oh, sure, sure. But yeah, it just, it seemed natural. It was just following my intuition I guess you would call it faith, Mm. you know, it's just like there was never sitting there and debating whether, oh, is this the right thing to do? Is that the right thing to do? What should I do now? It was just, this is what I'm doing. It, and it flowed like that. Like it was just natural. Um, Mm. not, not having to think about it a lot. Right. Right. Um, 
And also, I mean, I did have a goal at the time, which was to learn the language good enough that I could, you know, make it for this next phase, which was this, the beginning of this new translator training program at like basically this sort of university, uh, Buddhist um, university in India. Wow. So like that was, oh, wow. that was my goal was okay. to, you know, to, to learn enough that I could make it to that next phase because what I had been told was it was like a two year program and this is when the next one starts. Okay. So there was like, there was a goal there, but there was so much going on, you know, just in, in the moment, right. you know, being in this monastery and, um, you know, meeting the, the people that live there and right. um, the other teachers at the school that were teaching me Tibetan and I was tutoring them in English. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and getting to explore some of the surrounding area. Right. Um, you know, there was there was enough there to really, you know, focus on. It wasn't like, OK, I just have to get through this so I can make it to India. Right. Right. You know, totally. But that so you would learn enough Tibetan to go to school and understand what they're telling you. Yes. OK, got exactly. it. Got it. Got it. OK. And I mean, for the most part, with the exception of, a, you know, a couple of the teachers that knew a little bit of English, it was pretty much 100 percent immersion you know, in the language. So it's like, it was really difficult in the beginning because I knew a little bit and I had been taking, um, I'd I'd had a tutor in Sheening, but it was like, you know, he would come over a couple hours a week and this was, I was getting lessons every day. Plus I had to learn how to speak. Otherwise I wouldn't be able to communicate very well. Right. You know, it'd be really interesting to sit in a classroom and be like, I have no freaking idea what you're saying. Yeah, it really was, <laughs> right? It, it totally was. Okay, cool. So, hmm, hmm, I'm just trying to think. Okay, the one thing we haven't gotten into is like, so when I got into, I guess, so how I got into mindfulness was through um, a therapeutic practice, and it was very Zen, mindfulness focused. Hmm. And then you were the one who actually introduced um, Buddhism to me. And then when I started getting into it like bite by bite because there's literally like there's just so much you know so um i guess for anyone who's interested in tibetan buddhism and maybe have kind of has been inspired by your story or who's sparked an interest yeah like where could they even begin because there's countless practices and deities and yeah well i think one of the things that I like to explain when I talk about meditation is there's not a lot of difference in certain um, Buddhist meditations and like non-Buddhist meditations. What makes them Buddhist, quote unquote, is your motivation. Um, so depending on depending on like the tradition that you're following or the the, you know the lineages that you're you're practicing from you're either um you know you're either working on your own enlightenment or you're working to become enlightened so that you can help other people be enlightened and you're not gonna like be selfish about it and just okay i'm enlightened now and i'm done 
right. you're going to be there to help other people get to the same place, right. right? So depending on what that motivation is, to me, what makes something Buddhist, quote unquote, would be what what your intention is when you set out right. and then what you do with it afterwards. So right. like in the Tibetan tradition, you set, a, you set an intention before, like say you want to meditate. Okay, so before I meditate, I would sit down and set an intention, whether that's saying prayers or just thinking about what that intention is. Right. You know, that I want to help free other, you know, beings from um, their own um, situation, right? That that's, that's the goal of my uh, enlightenment, if sure. you're going to have a goal. And then I'm going to do the meditation, and then after I'm done... I'm going to dedicate whatever merit, whatever good energy that I, you know, gained from that practice to that same, that same goal of, you know, of liberating others. Um, when I get to the point that I can actually do that. Um, so yeah, I think some of those practices you could do as sort of a you know non-Buddhist person, you would just have your own intention and dedication bookended around it. Right, right. Um, but yeah, to to directly answer your question, um, there's I mean there's a lot of stuff on the internet for sure. Right. Um, and there's a lot of different avenues to to explore. I mean I think there's so many different types of Buddhism that you could practice, you know, and, you know, depending on where you live, you know, maybe just like Google what the different Buddhist centers are and, you know, maybe check out a few different ones and see. That's a really right? good idea. Yeah. Um, Buddhism tends to be kind of um, divided into certain like cultures. Like um, if you're practicing like from Thailand, um, Burma, um, Vietnam, it has like a certain flavor, right. and then like Chinese, Japanese has certain flavor. Tibetan has its own, you know, kind of special flavor. Um, but yeah, some of those, it's just sort of the the lineages that have been passed down from teacher to teacher, and, wow. and um, and so yeah, like you know, there's a lot of Zen in Vietnamese Buddhism, and um there's a different sort of flavor of Zen with like Japanese. Um, yeah. So it really just kind of depends. I would say like, it depends on what, right. what kind of sparks your interest, sure. you know? Um, you know, you mentioned Jack Cornfield. He comes from the Theravada tradition, which is, you could sort of consider it to be like the Orthodox yeah. um, Buddhism. Like they really just focus on here. Here was this guy he got enlightened. They called him the Buddha. He gave teachings. This is what he said, and we can study them. Whereas, like other other traditions, like might also study like other teachers that came later, right. or like the Tibetan stuff, where you're you know getting into tantra and tantric deities and these tantric tr- tr- uh, transmissions right. and things that are a lot more esoteric and that's why i would say that's why i would call it orthodox you know the the, right, the right. theravada orthodox is like here's this dude here's what he said let's study this and follow it right, versus right. you know the the opposite right 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 yeah <laughs> um but yeah i mean and there's like you said there's so many different kinds of meditation now 
um, that are available to people. Um, you know, to me, I think the um, one of the keys, though, is finding something that you like and being consistent with it. Because, like, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to get um, a very visible or, like, comprehensible result from meditation until you build up a practice. Right. Um, in fact, in the beginning, it might be really frustrating because, well, maybe you think like, oh, I should be doing something sure. right now or this is what should be happening. You know, you see these images of people that look so serene and, you know, so peaceful and or, you know, images of the Buddha. I mean, he's definitely not looking like, you know, angry or pissed right, off. He's right, you know right. pretty peaceful looking, right? right? Um and even people that aren't like Buddhists are drawn to that image right, and that, right. that iconography of you know peacefulness and and calmness and contentness. And yeah, you might not feel that way in the beginning. Um, in fact, I would probably bet money that you're not going to feel that way in the beginning. Um, my experience, at least in the beginning, was like being more aware of how chaotic my mind actually was all the time. And so it was, you know, from from that place and that time, it felt like, well, gee, this is giving me the exact opposite right. effect that I'm trying to go for. So WTF, you know, like, why should I keep doing it? Um, but yeah, consistency is really where, where the magic happens. That's so great that you mentioned that. Cause I, I mentioned that all the time on here and I just did a video on that and it's, it's just like anything else really. Right. I mean, um, reaping, and I like what you said, choose something that you like, you yeah. know, and like that way you'll be motivated towards it. And you mentioned several lineages. And even if someone started out with Zen Buddhism or, or, you know, just Zen practice or just even breathing, you right. know, obviously they would get something out of it. Oh um, yeah. And one is definitely not better than the other. Correct, it's just, yeah. um, you know, different people have different propensities and different things that, catch their attention um you know from a buddhist perspective you would say they have different karma right so there's going to be different things that um mm -hmm. that, that attract them so it's yeah. not it's not that one thing is better than the other um you know there are enlightened masters in wow. all different you know types of buddhism and enlightened masters that don't know anything about buddhism or don't practice anything about buddhism so but i think all of those all those people have something in common, which is they put in the work to to get the result that they're going for. Right. You know, you, it, I don't think it's well, I can't speak for everybody, but for most people, it's probably not a realistic expectation that you're just going to like instantly, you know, become enlightened without a heck of a lot of going work. Going through some crap. Right. Which is the, actually was the Buddhist path. I mean, he suffered yes. and this is why he came up with all these amazing tools, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and the, the, the interesting thing is, you know, to kind of take it back to Jack Cornfield and yeah. like the Theravada stuff, um, you know, the, when you read like the actual sermons or what you would call the sermons of the Buddha, like the talks that he gave to the, to the, to the monks and yeah. the people that were you know, coming to see him talk, 
because he was the Buddha right. and he had this knowledge now. Right. Um, you know, they would ask him a lot of different stuff. They would ask him like, you know, sometimes they would ask him, um, you know, like uh, about cosmology or about esoteric stuff or what happens after you die or all these different things. And he invariably went back to like these very foundational core things, which are there's there's suffering and that's an undeniable fact. Right. And this is what causes the suffering and this is how to um to, yes. to, to end the suffering. Right, right. And you know, there's this um there's this famous like story from one of those sermons that I really like where somebody was like they kept asking him like, well, what about this and what about that and what about that? And and I realized that this might seem contradictory because I you know, practice Tibetan Buddhism, which is a lot more, you know, multifaceted. But what the Buddha said was, he's like, hey, if somebody shot you with an arrow and you had this arrow sticking out of your arm, let's say, would you look down at the arrow and say, oh, well, I wonder what kind of wood the arrow is made out of. And where did the, where did the person that shot that arrow, like, where did he grow up and what school did he go to? And I wonder what his mother did. And, you know, like, Oh, that's, are there barbs in that arrowhead? And like, you know, he wouldn't be asking all these other questions. You would just be focused on getting rid of that arrow right. as quickly and as painlessly as possible because, right. you know, so that's the metaphor for our human situation that like we're, we're under the influence. We're controlled by this truth. Right. which is that there's suffering and it's there's suffering caused by the way that we look at and the way that we treat things. Right. And by following certain practices and changing your mindset, you can relieve that suffering. Absolutely. And that was like, bam, that's all I need to talk about. Doesn't matter what happens after you die because there's an arrow sticking out of your arm. Right. You know, right. like, yeah. Um, so all this stuff is like secondary to just like, hey, this is this is what he was talking about. And this is what, you know, the, the practice is about. And I guess, you know, people are people and they have different propensities. And so, you know, there's there's a propensity for everybody. Yeah, there's yeah. a path for everybody. Right. Um, and it all goes to the same place. Right. Like that. That's something that I appreciate about. um about the Dalai Lama is, you know, uh, he, he's said in teachings that I've attended or books that I've read, like, if you think th if you're, if you're a Buddhist or you're, you you want to be a Buddhist because you think you're going to be a better person or become more enlightened, then you would be practicing whatever religion you grew up with, then you have the wrong mo motivation and you should go back and study that religion more to find out where the, where the good stuff is, right. you know, because it's just about becoming a better human being. Right. Um, and you know, uh, somebody else said like different ways to the same place, right, right. you know, Absolutely. different paths that lead to the same destination. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting cause, um, we're actually on our way to go to a teaching at Garchen Rinpoche center. So I feel like, we are. We've been delaying this podcast for a while, so it's it's very timely, isn't it? Right. And um, and 
yeah, so I, I got into the Zen Buddhism, and then obviously, like, I'm a huge, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of ayahuasca, if I can say that. And there's this, uh, I'm pretty sure it was you who sent me that song by Manish Damore about mm -hmm. the medicine Buddha. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really interesting experience. And so <coughs> Manish Damore, I've known him as an artist. Um, he came out with an album in 2017 that was mainly ayahuasca focused. And then um, you had sent me that song. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, um, and you actually had told me about um, your your Buddhist practice. And I started to feel all these messages come through. Like I had had a missing puzzle, piece of the puzzle or something like that. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, we started going to a medicine Buddha practice. And then... You actually told me about the Mahakala practice at one point, and I was, like, really intrigued. And then when we went to the Medicine Buddha place, there was a fucking drum, and this guy started playing it. And then, and then I was like... And then it came in in one of my ceremonies. I was like, all right, I give up. I don't know what the fuck is going on here, but all my spirit guides are, are pointing me towards this energy. So I was like... Yeah, so... um yeah. I don't really know how it all works, but how I work my own path is that I just listen. Sure. And if there's something that comes up, I'm like, all right, cool. Oh, we got 60 minutes. Uh, we could keep going, but let's, yeah, let's try and uh, anchor sayings. We're going to bust out. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I guess we'll have an update after uh, we receive the empowerment and what that will be like, huh? Nice. Yeah. Let's um. So is there any last words you want to leave uh, with our audience? Any words of inspiration or just? No, I like what you said about listening. You know, I mean, there's, there's definitely um, a value to just following your intuition and combining that with, with consistency, whatever, whatever that practice like is. Combining with consistency, yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's something in the middle, right? Because it's like right. you're not you're you're letting it flow right um you're keeping that beginner's mind right like, that'll be for the next podcast yes right? yes um but you know you're also combining that with with action yes and yeah magical things happen when you do that it's very it's very powerful yeah. i love that well okay thank you so much for sharing your story and being on the podcast yeah, thanks for having me yeah so this has been Ayahuasca Car with the Multidimensional Journey and Jonathan Schechter. And as always, remember why you came here.